0: I have a bit of a confession to make right here from the beginning that I had kind of a weird proclivity and that's for really terrible comedies like the type of comedies where critics say they're disasters but for whatever reason I just end up having this weird bizarre connection to them I don't know if it's just the way that the characters are portrayed or just that it's an underdog type movie, but I just, I had this weird hankering. For example, my favorite movie of all time is an old Tom Hanks classic, The Burbs. Um, If you haven't seen it, you should. It's a classic. Uh, Additionally, just to kind of let you know how how bad this is, um, I'm also a huge fan of an early John Cusack movie, Better Off Dead. I don't know if you've seen it. Or Weird Al Yankovic's only movie, which was UHF, also a classic, but you kind of need to be in a very weird mood. Now, of these particular comedies that I happen to be a fan of, you know, today, all of the rage is these superhero flicks, but I don't think any of them compare to the 1999 box office flop, Mystery Men. You ever seen the movie? It just about ruined Ben Stiller's career, Seriously has William H. Macy in it. If you haven't seen it, you should also watch this. It's a classic, and you're going to also think your pastor is out of his mind. I only bring this up, and and this has nothing to do with the Bible study, but I really only bring it up to avoid plagiarism uh, because I'm going to title this morning's message, Mystery Man. Because what we're going to find at the end of Genesis chapter 14 is, in all honesty the most mysterious man in all of the Bible, a man by the name of Melchizedek. Additionally, just for your train of thought, we're going to be talking this morning about the importance of having a heart for the lost, as well as the underlying motivation uh, for giving. So we have a lot that the Lord is going to speak to us about through the last few verses of Genesis 14. Now let me set the stage just for a quick minute. Run up to where we're at, Chapter 14, we've seen a battle. We've seen a war. A war between five kings against a man by the name of Chedlamar and his four-nation coalition. This rebellion of these five nations against these four nations lead these four nations to coming into the land, crushing down the rebellion, basically destroying everything in their paths, when it's all said and done, they siege Sodom and Gomorrah and they take captive amongst the spoils a man by the name of Lot. It's really the only reason we're given this story of the first war in the Bible. It's to let us know that Lot, Abram's nephew, his brother, his family, his kin, has been taken captive. And this brings Abram into the fight. Running ahead, start verse 13, if you just join me. Let's read, then one who had escaped from the siege. He came, he told Abram the Hebrew. He dwelt by the terebinth trees of Merimeh, near the Amorite, Eshkel, the brother of Anner. These were allies. Now, when Abram heard that his brother Lot had been taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants. Servants, by the way, born into his own house. And they went in pursuit as far as Dan, northern part of Israel. And Abram divided his forces against them by night. So this is the strategy, the attack plan. And he and his servants attacked them under the cover of darkness, surprise, sneak attack, and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus, so even further up into Syria. So Abram has this victory. He brings all the goods, also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people presumably also taken captive from the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, while it's easy to conclude that Abram was moved here to act out of a love for Lot, that's obvious, right? He catches word that Lot has been taken captive and now he's going to act. He's going to go rescue Lot and his family. But you know, you can't also help but notice that there were other people taken captive. Other people that Abram liberates as well. These people, like Lot, as noted, lived in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. These were wicked cities, wicked residents. It, It means in all likelihood, these people that Abram goes and frees were some bad hombres. Back in Genesis 13, verse 13, when Lot and Abram separated, Moses tells us, that the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Now now what I find fascinating about the way that chapter 14 kind of plays itself out is that before this war breaks out and directly after God reiterated his promise To Abram, that all of the land had been given to him and his descendants forever. What happens afterwards between this reiterated promise of God that all of the land is given to you, while you've been giving it away to Lot, and then the war that ensues with the, the four and the five kings? What happens between the two is that Abram is exhorted by God, Genesis 13, verse 17, to arise and walk, where? Throughout the land, its length and its width. No doubt, as Abram worked his way through this land, he witnessed firsthand the wickedness of the Canaanites, including those who lived in the notoriously pagan cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not as though Abram was ignorant to what was going on. And yet, this is what blows my mind. Upon seeing this tragedy, catching word of what's happened, of what's taken place with the residents of this wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, what does Abram do when he catches word that these sinners have been taken captive? Does he stand idly by, reasoning that their awful plight was clearly the judgment of a just God? Does Abram even delight in their misfortunes, seeing that this situation, you know, they kind of had it coming. It was their just and due reward. No, you know, if that had been the case, if Abram had had taken that vantage point concerning the additional people that had been captured, what would he have done? He would have armed up his men. They would have gone under the cover of darkness. They would have rescued Lot and left the rest of them. I mean, why why does Abram need to deal with these other people? Why does he need to free them? If he's just going for Lot. See, I I don't think that that's the case. Because he demonstrates kindness to everyone who had been taken captive. When we first looked at this text two Sundays ago, we noted how this story presents a very clear example, how we're to act when we catch word of a brother who's been taken captive by sin. That we shouldn't stand idly by, that we should go out and rescue the person lost. That's what Jesus did for us, didn't he? That he left behind the 99 to pursue you. That one lost, stubborn sheep. But that said, I also see another lesson that we can't overlook from this story. Because Abram doesn't just rescue Lot, his kin. He rescues these wicked people from Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, what I think the story is telling us is that there's a lesson for how we're not only to view, but how we're to relate to those who aren't related to us, who aren't presently part of, of the family of God. We can understand in some regards how we're to go out and do everything we can to rescue our kin, our brothers and sisters in the Lord who have fallen into sin. But what about everyone else? I think Abram's example here tells us something important. Consider this. Would Abram have still acted to save those people, even if Lot had not been taken captive? Like when this guy who, who, who breaks out, he's the one person to escape. He gets to Abram. He's like, this is what just happened. If Lot wasn't included, would Abraham have been like, tough luck, pal? You see, I don't think that that's how he would have reacted. I think he would have done the exact thing he did, even if Lot wasn't there. And, and let me explain why, because I think there's two reasons. First, I think it's obvious that Abram felt a responsibility. Like God had given him all the land, right? That's the context, that's the flow of what's happening. You can imagine Abram catching word that a foreign power had come into his land, was messing with his peeps, was taking captives, those in his neighborhood. He wasn't gonna stand by and allow that to happen. He had trained soldiers ready. He's prepared for a fight at some point. Sure, the Canaanites were wicked. And yes, it's true, there would come a day that God would judge them. But man, these women, children, these folks, they were living in his hood, on his block. I'm sure Abram, when he caught word, thought to himself, these people in my land have been entrusted to my care, that he sensed responsibility. But here's the second point, to demonstrate grace. Like you can imagine Abram's compassion like why he was moved, was ultimately fostered by an appropriate perspective of himself in relation to all those people who lived in Canaan. Like, don't forget how Abraham's story begins, right? He was one of them. That's how he begins. Before God appeared to him in Ur of the Chaldeans, Abram was a wicked, pagan idolater. But what happened? God chose him. Not because he earned it or because he deserved it, but because God loved him. And God appeared to him. God demonstrated grace to Abram when he was a pagan. So why shouldn't he also demonstrate grace to pagans? He'd done nothing to deserve God's favor. So how in the world could he view himself fundamentally as being any better than those in Sodom and Gomorrah? Or for that matter, the Canaanite. You know, it's sad but so often adopting this pilgrim sojourner mindset can cause the christian it can cause the christian to do something terrible and it's not something that cognitively happens but it just develops over time when we get into this pilgrim sojourner mindset we tend to grow over time apathetic when it comes to the plight of the world around us like in our desire to remain pure, you know, undefiled. It's so easy for us to fall into this us and them mentality when it comes to the world. It's almost like Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes said that some people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. It's, it's a sad indictment but I think there's some truth into what he's pointing out. Like the problem with this perspective is that in in adopting this us and them mentality, we lose sight of one very important reality. Yes, Christians are pilgrims simply passing through this life with heaven as our final destination. It's a glorious reality. And yet, think about it. There's a reason that God has specifically set up the journey of faith to carry us through the wicked world before we get to the final destination. And, and I hope you know, I hope this is not breaking any some, some kind of revelation, but our purpose and the journey taking us through this wicked world before we get to heaven is not so we can look at that world and snicker and judge and pridefully sneer at those sinners going to hell. Sure. Abram's heart, it was set on heaven. This is what's important for us. His eternal focus didn't cause him to become ambivalent as it pertained to the lost world around him. His walk with God, Until that walk took him home, Abram was living in a land filled with people that God had given to him to be responsible for and mainly to demonstrate God's amazing grace too. This same reality exists for you and I. While we might be pilgrims, it is crucial, critical even, that we never, ever, ever, ever forget that the journey takes us through the, this fallen world for one reason, so that we might shine the light of the world into the darkness. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 14, 15, and 16, Jesus said to his disciples, something he says to us this morning, he says, you're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp put it under a basket. But what do they do? They put that light on a lamp stand and it gives light to all those who are in the house. And this is Jesus' exhortation. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Abram catches word that these very wicked people, these residents of Sin City, you know, what happened in Sodom stayed in Sodom. They didn't judge. Abram didn't judge. When he saw an opportunity to minister, he jumped at it. Whether it be your coworkers, your neighbors, fellow soccer or PTA parents, maybe your classmates, or for that matter, your family and your friends. I hope you know God has not placed these people in your life, in your land, for you to condemn, to look down upon, to separate from, or to judge. God has placed these people in your land so that you can demonstrate the same grace that transformed your life with them. You know, I hope, it's my prayer that Calvary 3.16 be a place, that we be a people so heavenly minded that we take our short time here on this earth very seriously. Again, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, we read that Jesus came and spoke to his disciples, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore. Engage in what? This journey of faith, whose destiny is heaven. But he says, Go engage in the journey, walk with God, walk with Jesus, run the race, and while doing so, make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You have a land. You have a land that God has given to you to be responsible for, to demonstrate grace to not before we get the cart before the horse. But I I do want to just take a minute, do something a little unconventional. I'm going to skip ahead to a few verses at the end of the chapter before we kind of backtrack because I want to illustrate another point related concerning what Abraham does after he rescues these people. Look at verse 21. Jump ahead. We we read now the king of Sodom. Abraham's come back with these spoils, these people. He comes out, he says to Abram, give me the persons. Take the goods for yourself. But Abraham, Abram, said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing. From a thread to a sandal strap, I will take nothing that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten. Obviously, we can't get that back. And the portion of the men who were with me, these other men who were kind of uh, allies of Abram, Aner, Eshkol, Marimri, let them take their portion. Now, notice at great expense to his own person, Abraham goes out and he rescues these people. He arms up, he supplies his men, they go, they attack the cover of darkness, they pursue him all the way up towards Damascus. Great victory. Abraham has done all of this. No one has asked him to. He's done it of his own free will. He's financed the operation. He's funded the war. Upon bringing these people back and all of the spoils, does he want anything in return? Nope, not a bit. He wants nothing. What grace, right? Nothing in return. You know, Abram, he goes above and beyond to make sure that everyone knew that his kindness to the residences of Sodom and Gomorrah had not been motivated by gain. They hadn't been motivated by fame. Abraham didn't even act to gain some type of influence. Abram wants it known to all those in Sodom that he reached out, that he acted to rescue them for one reason and one reason alone. God told him to. He says, I have raised my hand to the Lord. Please understand, when you seek to demonstrate grace to your fellow man, it's important you actually demonstrate grace. That your actions truly reflect Jesus. That your kindness comes without precondition. That it's literally no strings attached because that's what grace is. Like, I know that that seems like such an obvious point that it doesn't need to be mentioned. But you know, I've found that demonstrating real grace is really difficult. Think about your kids or your spouse or the guy two doors down with the barking dogs. I mean, not saying that that is like, I'm just using an illustration. Demonstrating grace, real grace, man, it's really difficult. You see, unlike Abram, I have found that we end up, we don't do it cognitively, but we we end up attaching sometimes very subtle strings to our kindness. Like we do it without even realizing it. Like we end up ministering to people As long as those people meet some undefined set of benchmarks. Like, it's not grace. Like, seriously, think back for just a minute to the people you're no longer reaching out to. The the people you've moved on from. Like, when did you reach that point where you gave up? Like, if you're honest, the reason that your service or your ministry to that person has ended probably was because that person was no longer meeting this set of conditions that you had, you had imposed. Like, let me give you an illustration of many of what I'm trying to get at. Like, has the Lord ever had your path crossed with someone where, upon meeting them, you thought to yourself, wow, that's a C316 person and they don't even know it yet? Like, man, like, they're prime. If, if only I could just get them to come to church. What, what this church has done for me would totally do for them. Like, have you ever crossed paths with someone that that, that idea, that that notion kind of struck your heart? If you've ever had that experience, let me, let me kind of explain what typically follows. Since, you know, pushing church right from the beginning feels a little contrived, premature, even a bit awkward, what do you do? You end up kind of setting your focus, your strategy, your plan of attack on practical ministry. You know, you want to build a relationship to gain a foothold. To do this, you do simple things, good things, important things. You invite them over for dinner. You go to the park. You create this framework so that when you finally do say, hey, would you like to come to church with me? It's not awkward. Let me ask. What happens if that person, after your energies and effort, chooses not to come with you to church? What, what follows? Now, it, it might not be immediate, but because there was a condition, you'll no longer invest the same amount of time, energy, and effort into the relationship as you had before. It's something that naturally happens, but it's not grace. And what's terrible about this development is what does it end up communicating to the people you are ministering to, but everyone else? It proves that your friendship with that person was simply a means to an end. That your motivator, the motivation of your personal investment was to get the person to church as opposed to demonstrating to them the love and grace of Jesus. This is why Abram was, there's no strengths to this. God loved me and I'm just trying to love my neighbor. I don't want anything. I'm just, I'm lifting my hands to the Lord and I want those hands to be his to those around me. No strings attached. Once again, if you're gonna demonstrate grace, make sure it's grace. I'm so glad that this is not the way that Jesus approached his ministry to me. Like, can you echo that, right? That I'm so glad Jesus' love for me, his ministry to me, wasn't predicated upon me. That it was a no-strings-attached proposition. Friend, if you are seeking to represent Jesus to the world, it's critical your love be unconditional. In many instances, go ahead and prepare for it to also be long-suffering. So that in the end, it's a love that's unwavering and reflective of Jesus. Well, following Abram's victory, in addition to the king of Sodom coming out to greet him, we also read of another king coming out to do the same, the mysterious, the man of mystery, Melchizedek. Let's go back to verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley, after his return from defeat of Chedlamar and the kings who were with him. Then we're told, Melchizedek, King of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and of earth, and blessed be the God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So Abram gave him a tenth of all. Now, the way the text sets the scene, it's interesting. It would seem Abraham's coming back. Boom, king of Sodom, who, by the way, had fled during the siege. Total coward, man by the name of Barah. Berah means evil or wicked, total wicked dude. But man, spoils are coming back. He jumps, gets out there. Hey, my man Abram, right? He had done nothing about it. So the king of Sodom comes out to greet Abram. Only then for this mysterious Melchizedek character, To crash the party. The king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley. After his return, then Melchizedek. In the midst of all of this. Now, before we address Abram's interactions with Melchizedek, I want to start by just trying to to develop a profile so we can develop an identity for who this guy actually is. I mean, is this not bizarre, peculiar to you? Right in the middle of the text, Melchizedek drops out of nowhere. First, Keep in mind, Melchizedek, the name itself, it means king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. Aside from that, we're also told that he was the king of Salem. This word Salem, that means peace. So we have Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, who is also the king of peace. Most biblical scholars believe the city of Salem was probably the early settlement That would later become known as Jerusalem or the city of peace. We'll get to it in a minute, but I actually tend to think that it's not Jerusalem, but that the the city of Salem is actually heaven. Now, in addition to this, we're also told that Melchizedek, so he's the king of righteousness, the king of peace, king of Salem, he was also priest of God Most High. And if there's any doubt as to who the identity of this particular God was, we're told that he was also the Lord, the possessor of heaven and of earth. So God Most High, we have this masculine, overarching, sovereign God term, but then we're given the more personal name, Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, Jehovah. So this is the same God of Abram that Melchizedek is a priest unto Which is crazy. Like really, it's bizarre. Well, a king was a man appointed by God to be God's authority over man. It was the job of the priest to represent men before the throne of God. Like as such, one man possessing both roles was completely forbidden. By the time we get to the law of Moses, it was outlawed. For a man, one man, to be both king and priest. You could be king and prophet, or prophet-priest, but you couldn't be king and priest. This man representing God, to the people, the priest representing man back to God. So these roles are different, thus they were separated. They couldn't overlap. On a side note, the story of Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26 perfectly illustrates how seriously God took this. One king tried to fill both roles. Uh Uh-uh, didn't fly, didn't float. Which means here, the fact that Melchizedek, this man of mystery, is presented as the only biblical character who seems to be allowed to be both priest and king simultaneously, well, and God doesn't have a problem with it, that adds to the mystery surrounding his identity. And if that wasn't enough... The mystery only deepens when following this story. Do we get three chapters on Melchizedek? Nope. Not in Genesis. Actually, you don't even get it in the Old Testament. Melchizedek, from this passage, after this event, walks away, pff, disappears. He resurfaces in one verse in Psalms 110 and then doesn't reappear till you get three chapters written about him in Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. Where'd he go? Like, what's the deal with this man, Melchizedek? Speaking of those two passages I referred to, according to Psalms 110, verse 4, we're told that concerning Melchizedek, that the Messiah would actually be a priest of the order of Melchizedek the coming Savior, would be a priest, not of Aaron, but of Melchizedek, according to Psalms 110. And then Hebrews 5, 6, and 7 inform us that while Jesus had a claim to the throne of Israel because he was a descendant directly through the kingly tribe of Judah, Jesus was also able to be our high priest in heaven because of the priesthood of Melchizedek, not that Jesus came from Aaron or the Levites, so he's king because he comes from Judah. That would exclude him from being a priest of the order of Levites because he doesn't descend from the Levites, but he could be our priest because he comes from this man, Melchizedek. Now, it appears the original priesthood. This is first mention. This original priesthood of Melchizedek, it's significant because it's the first mention of priest priesthood, any of that. It seems as though Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to the line of the Levitical order allowing Jesus to legitimately serve as both our high priest and our king, which is awesome. Now, with this in mind, it's not a surprise that our text informs us that Melchizedek was a man of incredible importance as well as notoriety. Like, Abraham seems to even recognize by his actions here, this hierarchy, that Melchizedek was superior to him because he receives the blessing of Melchizedek. And in the Old Testament, it was always the greater who blessed the lesser. And Abram receives the blessing of Melchizedek, which means Abraham recognizes this mystery man was superior to him. Additionally, what does he do in response? He ties a portion of the spoils back to him. Now, what makes this exchange even more bizarre, further complicating his identity, is in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, this is what we're told. We're told for when God made a promise to Abram, because God could swear by no one greater, what would God do? He would make the promise where he would swear by himself. The implications of Hebrews 6, verse 13 is that there has never been a man greater than Abram. But Melchizedek is clearly greater, at least from Abram's vantage point. You see how all this comes together. Now, aside from the fact that the Genesis record provides no explanation as to where Melchizedek came from, how he came to be in Canaan, how he was a worshiper of the true and living God, how he was a priest of the true and living God, how Abraham knew of Melchizedek. We're also not told that. We don't even know what happened or where he went after the exchange. But Hebrews 7, verse 3 deepens the mystery. This is how the author of Hebrews describes this mystery man. He writes that Melchizedek was a man without father, without mother. I hope you know that that it's hard to be human without father without mother without genealogy no offspring having neither beginning of days nor end of life but made like the son of god so that melchizedek remains a priest continually <laughs> what <laughs> like the implications he's still alive He was a priest then. He's always been a priest. He's a priest today. No father, no mother, no genealogy, no beginning, no end. Yeah, you had the Levites, you had Aaron. That was a picture of just Melchizedek. Like, so who in the world could he be? The majority of biblical scholars present this mystery man as at a minimum, a picture, a typological picture of Jesus. And we can see how that's obvious, right? But I think that position, just limiting Melchizedek's identity to being a typological picture, I think that that actually fosters more questions than it provides answers. Like most notably, if Melchizedek was was a man who was then a picture, a foreshadowing picture of, of Jesus, but he was a man who lived in Canaan, same time as Abram, the head scratcher to me is why in the world would God mess around with dealing with Abram? If you have Melchizedek already living in the land, who seems to be a pretty righteous, holy, peaceful man. Like Abram has not done much to demonstrate his worth, but you have Melchizedek. So why Abram if Melchizedek has been there? Personally, with the full profile of Melchizedek in mind, it seems from my estimation that the only logical identity of this mystery man is actually that he was Jesus. That Melchizedek is Jesus. That he's not just a picture of Jesus, but that he's actually Jesus. And and really fancy biblical terms. We call this presentation of Melchizedek in Genesis 14 then as being a Christophany. The word Christophany, what this demonstrates is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Basically, that there were times in the Old Testament that Jesus came to earth before he was a babe, wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in a manger. Now, before you think I'm crazy, or this is lunacy, or you're like, what kind of church did I just walk into? I hope you know. Please know. Like, next thing he's going to be talking about is a comet coming by earth that we're all going to jump on. No. No. This isn't crazy, because think about it. And I hope you know, Jesus, the second member of the three amigos, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? It's probably a real sacrilegious way of of referring to the Trinity as the three amigos, but just roll with me. Jesus is the second member of the Trinity, which means that Jesus didn't come to be the moment he was born to Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. I hope you know that about Jesus. It wasn't like there was another person of the Trinity that's like, ta-da, I'm now he- I've, I've arrived, I've come to be. It was just two, but now there's three. I'm here. Consider that in John chapter 1, verse 18, the apostle wrote that no one has seen God, speaking of the Father, at any time, which means that any time we have a physical manifestation of the person of God in Scripture, whether it's New Testament or Old Testament alike, when you have a physical appearing of God, that's Jesus. It's the second member of the Trinity. Paul would write in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, he says this, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is what's important though. Who... Being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, meaning he was God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance of men, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What Paul is saying is that Jesus made a decision to don human flesh, to come to earth, and to die, meaning... He existed before he made the decision. Like, it's a radical idea, I know, but I believe with all my heart that it was actually Jesus, God in human flesh, who comes out to greet Abram from the city of Salem. Now, very quickly, just just consider for a minute the three interesting implications of Melchizedek being Jesus. First, what does that mean? That means Jesus has and will always be the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Secondly, the very idea of the priest, and for those of you who are ex-Catholics, this is relevant, the very idea of the priesthood, this intercessor representing man before God, the precedent of the priesthood is where? It's with Melchizedek. Meaning the precedent is not in the law of Moses, but the precedent of the priesthood itself rests in the very person of Jesus. The order of Melchizedek. And what this means is that the Levitical order, being nothing more than a picture of the priestly role filled by Jesus, What that means is that we can rest assured that we need no other man but Christ Jesus himself to have access to the throne of God. It is one of the reasons I am a protestant. The notion that I need a man to represent me before the throne of grace other than Jesus is a falsehood. The third third implication here, is that now Abram's tithe to Melchizedek, Melchizedek's Jesus, it kind of takes on a whole new new level of meaning, doesn't it? Like the the word tithe that we find here, it means a tenth part. Well, Abram kept, kept nothing of the spoils of Sodom for himself. We've talked about that choosing to give everything back, right, to Berah, the king of Sodom. What does Abram first do? We're told that he gave of his increase to Jesus, to Melchizedek. Uh, no, the idea of a tithe, this tenth part representing one's first fruits, that entire idea finds its basis here and is developed more extensively in greater detail in the Levitical law. Now, I need to make a very important point about this passage because I think a lot of people, this is where we take the wrong right turn when we should head left. The emphasis of our text is not the amount of Abram's gift. But instead, the emphasis of the text is the exchange that motivated his gift. People get all bent out of shape. Well, how much should we give? Not the point. It's the motivation of Abram's gift and not the amount. Look at our text again. Before he gives anything to Melchizedek, we're told what? Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram. (laughs) Don't miss the obvious especially if the identity of Melchizedek is Jesus. Abram comes back. He returns from the battle for Jesus to come out and greet him. And then to give him what? Does it not jump off the page to you? Bread and wine. Like, think about it. Like, what's Melchizedek doing? Abram? Let's have communion. Let's break the bread. Let's drink the cup. In Matthew chapter 26, we're told that as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. He took the cup, gave thanks, gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many the remissions of sin. Like This is something you can't overlook. The motivation behind Abram's gift to Melchizedek was the incredible blessing that he had just been given. He had just been blessed. Like, like I can't help. I, I believe that Abram knew exactly what the elements were. And if he didn't, Melchizedek explained it. The priest of God most high. And in that moment, He's thinking about his entire life, this journey of faith, how grace has been sufficient through all of his failures to this moment that God's call and commission had only been possible. This life he had been given had only been possible for one reason. He believed that God would send his only begotten son to die for his sins. The bread and the wine. That that's the only thing that made him different. And those from Sodom. That motivated his gift. And you know what? It's that that should be the motivator for every aspect of the Christian life the immense grace and what's represented by the bread and the wine. <laughs> what does that represent? His death for my life, his pain. For my gain, his indignation for my glorification, his condemnation for my justification, his separation from God so that I could be reconciled. The bread and the wine, you know what it represents? It represents his shouldering of mine in your sin on the cross of Calvary so that I might be able to adorn his righteousness forever. What an exchange. Friend, it's the legalist that grows consumed with the amount that one gives. For grace, it demands no recompense nor does it establish a limit to how one might respond. It's why focusing on the tithe misses the point. The focus should be on the motivator. I'm going to tell you something that that probably no other pastor is saying this morning that you probably don't often hear at church. If you feel compelled to give because you're trying to get something from God, or you feel obligated or guilty if you don't, If you find yourself consumed with an amount, do I do 10%? Do I do 5%? Do I do more than that? Will God be pleased one way or the other? If that's you, keep your money because you've totally missed the point. However, if giving is motivated as a response to God's incredible gift, a gift you could never repay, good thing you're not asked to, Then the amount of your gift, if it's a response, it doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't matter for what could you ever give that that could come close to comparing to what he gave, the bread and the wine. God isn't concerned with the amount you give, but this is what he is concerned. He's concerned with the motivation behind your gift. I want to close with a portion of a sermon that Charles Spurgeon, probably one of the greatest preachers of all time, that he gave developing this very thought in a way that really only he can. I could have stolen it and put it in my own words, but he just he says it perfectly enough that I want to close reading what he writes. He says, It is noteworthy that with regard to Christian liberty, this great grace... There are no rules laid down in the Word of God. I remember hearing somebody say, I should like to know exactly what I ought to give. <laughs> yes, dear friend, no doubt you would. But you are not under a similar system to that by which the Jews were obligated to pay tithes to the priests. If there were any such rule laid down in the Gospel, it would destroy the beauty of spontaneous giving and take away all the bloom from the fruit of your liberty. There is no law to tell me what I should give my father for his birthday. There is no rule laid down in any law book to decide what present a husband should make to his wife, nor what token of affection we should bestow on others we love. No, the gift must be free or it's lost all of its sweetness. Yet this absence of law and rule does not mean that you are therefore to give less than the Jews did, 10%, but rather that you should give more. We should give as we love. You know how much Jesus Christ loved by knowing how much he gave. He gave himself for us because he loved us with all the force and energy of his nature. I commend you to that rule. Give as you love. And measure your love by your gift. He said it pretty good, didn't he? So it's with that if you join me, let's pray. Father.